Welcome to the 100th episode of the We Go Places podcast. Listeners know that I'm lucky to sit down and talk to former We Go Wildcats about their fascinating careers. For the 100th episode, I return to guest number one. Class of 2010's Dr. Jessica Munoz, emergency medicine resident physician at Loma Linda Hospital in California. Last time I spoke with Jessica, she was about to begin the last phase of med school at The Ohio State. Today, she gives us an insider look at what it's like to save lives in an emergency room. Joining us for the 100th interview of the We Go Places podcast, we're taking it all the way back to the start with the very first guest, who is now class of 2010, Dr. Jessica Munoz, emergency medicine resident physician at Loma Linda Hospital in California. So, uh, Jessica, um, last time we, we talked, you were kind of in the process of kind of getting getting ready for your exams at The Ohio State uh, University. I was wondering if we could maybe go back just a little bit just for those that might be listening to uh, the interview for the first time uh, as you as the guest. Um, tell me if you can, if you could describe, how did you know that you wanted to make the switch in medicine and how did you know that in high school? So I decided I wanted to go into medicine during my senior year of high school uh, during my anatomy and physiology class with Dr. Murphy. And prior to that, I thought I was going to be a detective. I loved watching like CSI Miami and I'm like, wow, the adrenaline sounds amazing. You get to help people, but also like, you know, use your skills to like figure out what happened in, in every single scenario. And then I started to take this class, anatomy and physiology, and I realized how challenging and impressive the human body was. And so that's what made me be like, no, I can't, I can't go to, you know, Western Illinois with like my full ride because my passion and my true challenge is to go into medicine. And so I applied super late in the cycle. I think it was like January of, of like a couple months before graduation. And I decided, nope, not doing the full ride anymore. I'm going to be a doctor and I had the full support of everyone. And so that's, that's kind of why I did it. And it's, it's interesting because I always go back to that moment. I'm like, wow, I think, you know, maybe, there's a lot of challenges in medicine, especially especially right now during the pandemic. And it's not easy, but I feel like I've always learned how to put out fires my whole life. And so I think that it's actually quite a perfect fit for me to be in emergency medicine specifically, because I think that's like the entry to to every patient's healthcare. It's how you see them initially and how you present yourself and what resources you give them and the care you give them that will determine their, their outcomes, essentially, their patient out, the patient outcomes. And so I think that that's beautiful. And I think that I ended up being in the best place. And to be quite honest, I think I may have been bored in any other field that I may have chosen. Uh, if I could just go back to the, the decision that you made, 
you had the support of friends and family to to make an, an incredible pivot uh, at, at that moment. What else gave you the confidence to uh, to so uh, to diverge so radically from what was the plan two months ago, and now you're going to a, a totally different field? Uh, what else kind of gave you that momentum to make that shift? That's it's such a good question because I think I go back and I feel like when I when I decided to to be I was playing tennis I was on my pla- like playing tennis during one of my after school days and I I was just sitting there like do I want to be a cop or do I want to be a doctor and kind of sh- and kind of be there when the patient is still alive and I could possibly literally bring them back to life by shocking them by doing chest compressions. And I was like, I I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, I know what the answer is. And I think I just got so lucky that it happened to be senior year that somehow I I was right in enough. I had enough time to actually make that change. And, you know, initially my parents and it was mostly my parents who didn't want me to go to college, you know? And so they actually, although they were supportive towards the end, initially it was kind of hard for them. And then I had to tell them like, oh, now I'm going to add an additional four years of medical school. But I think that specifically, like I sat down with Dr. Murphy and I told them, and he's like, if you truly think this is what you want to do, then you need to go for it. And I was like, I have no doubt in my mind that this is what I want to do. And then after that is, you know, I, I felt the support of every single one of my teachers. So I would say like most of the support actually came from Lego itself, you know, and it's incredible to like think back uh, how long it's been since I was sitting in the, in that classroom and have, and had those teachers, but I still keep in touch with them. I mean, I had uh, Miss Arnold actually like made it to my, uh, my medical school graduation, you know, and one of my third grade teachers was there. <laughs> and so it's kind of incredible to be like, I had so much support from them and, Thankfully, because of that support, I was able to be like, okay, my parents will actually come through at some point, which now they're like incredibly, you know, they're so proud of me. They're always bragging about me. So that was a a great change in their perspective about my education and supporting me. You make the switch to to pursue medicine. What school did you go to? I went to St. Xavier in the south side of Chicago. Now, Jess, you were very active in extracurriculars at St. Xavier. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe describe how you were able to strike that balance between it being so dedicated to your schoolwork, but how you were able to really do some really interesting things uh, uh, beyond the classroom. Uh, I, I seem to remember that you were part of a tutoring program as well and some really impactful uh, extracurriculars that you did there. Uh, can you... Uh, 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 explain what you did? Yeah. So it's actually really interesting because I think that at every single point in my life, including college and then med school and now residency, people always ask me like, how do you have time for that? Like, when do you have the energy? Like, like people are always so surprised. And I, I always tell them, I, I've just always felt a lot of energy. Like I always have a lot of energy and, and I'm, I'm driven by so many different factors. And a lot of it is kind of how I grew up with limited resources, being the first person in my family to go to college, you know, and, and I've had to overcome so many challenges. And so I've, I've always just had this, this uh, determination to give back to my community, whether that's especially, you know, mentoring first generation students going back and setting an example because I never really had one or somebody who looked like me who who really pushed me and, and I looked at them and I said, wow, if they can do it, I can too. 
So it was mostly my my white teachers, you know, and there's something about having someone who looks like you in real life who who makes you feel like you can do anything. And so I think that's extremely powerful. And so when I was an undergrad at SXU, I, you know, I was tutoring, I was mentoring, I started my own mentoring school at a nearby high school where there was a lot of violence and I got super involved with that. I was a resident assistant. I volunteered at a nearby hospital. I was doing research. I actually also had a job as, you know, as being a a mentor. They they paid us to be in a class for like the the incoming freshmen and I did that as well and I worked in a chemistry lab and so I don't really know how I did it. <laughs> That's a question I keep asking myself because I'm like how did I do all of that and still like end up like with really awesome grades, you know? And so I, I don't quite know. I, then I went to med school and I told myself, I'm not going to get super involved because I, I want to kind of be a bit more chill. And I, I listened to myself initially, but then I started doing all kinds of stuff again. I was volunteering in the nearby clinic and helping through the underserved, undocumented, uninsured patients. And so, and I was the president of the Latino Medical Student Association. I continued to mentor. And so I haven't been able to, to quite you know, let go of doing so much. I think now that I'm getting older, I'm actually turning 30 this year. And I'm, you know, now that I'm in residency, I work 80. Sometimes I I think the most I worked was probably 120 hours in a week. And so I still find the time to like, okay, I'm going to find if I can mentor, you know, 15 kids, I'm going to mentor like three people. And I'm going to make sure I do like quality work. And I, and I, you know, do the best that I can with the limited time that I have. And so I still do a little bit on on that on the side, but it's definitely limited because I I work so much. And so now it's more about like my mental health. And even then I I started getting involved with an organization to try to help uh, increase awareness. A physician uh, suicide is is a, a huge thing. And I think it's been hidden a lot for a long time. But now because of the pandemic, there, it's been in the news a lot and people are talking about it more. And I think part of the issue is because we are overworked. And, and sometimes as physicians, you know, in the hospital, I think that sometimes people assume that we're we're just sitting at our computer putting in orders. But there's so much that happens kind of in, in the shadows that maybe the nurses don't see or that the patients don't see, like I have to manage, you know, sometimes 15 patients in one day. And so, you know, a nurse may have four. And so, uh, it's just so different for us. And, you know, I, thankfully I get along with, with everyone in the hospital because I'm, I'm pretty outgoing and friendly, you know, but there have been instances that I've experienced where people leash out, and they blame, they try to blame someone for the issues. And so I can see why so many of these issues and the lack of sleep can lead to, you know, physicians wanting to commit suicide. And so I've actually been thinking a lot about like my path to where I am right now. And I, I want to run for office in the future and I want to create policies that help prevent physician suicide that improve the working conditions of resident physicians and, and physicians across the nation and so I've just realized like, wow, I had to go through all of this to really experience how difficult it is to be a physician in the U.S., starting from how hard it is to get accepted into medical school, especially if you come from a very low income, first generation. I mean, medical school is not made for people like me at all. A lot of a lot of my classmates had 
you know, family members who were doctors, who showed them a lot about how the system works or who had money for tutors, for all kinds of issues where I was sitting in my room thinking, are my parents going to be able to afford their mortgage? As a resident, uh, you know, I still struggle with that because we don't get paid much. I think a lot of people assume that as doctors, we get paid a lot, but it's, I mean, half of my money goes to my rent, especially here in California. And so there's so much that, you know, I I'm passionate about changing because I want to make, I want to help get more underrepresented students to become physicians, you know, because it's so important to, to have someone who looks like you, someone that your patients can trust. I, the majority of my patients here in California and Loma Linda, a lot of them are Spanish speaking Latinos. And so when they see me, like I, I automatically, some of them have told me too, like, I'm so thankful I got to have you because you speak my language and you understand me. And we've had conversations about, yeah, my dad also doesn't trust physicians. So I get it. Um, and so I think that makes a huge difference. And so I'm excited for the future of medicine and in the ways in which I will personally be able to like kind of get back to the med- medical community through policy work and, you know, running for office and all of that stuff. What are the type of like emotional management and self-care things that you do that are, are most helpful? Because, I mean, you do have a very incredible, as a emergency room doctor, you're exposed to things that are incredibly high pressure, hu- incredible human drama uh, and tragedy, and sometimes wonderful things that happen, as you said, that you know that you save people as well. How do you find that calm or the the chill as you said before to kind of uh kind of re-regulate you yourself uh in the best way possible yeah i mean there's definitely been shifts where you know one of my patients died or something just didn't go the way it was supposed to go and i'm still learning so as as a resident you know you have the attending who oversees everything that you do but you're still learning every day and you know on those difficult shifts where a patient one of my patients died it's I, I you have to just snap out of it because you need to go and take care of other patients who are still alive and who still need you. And so I think I just have this like innate ability to just be like, OK, I tried my best. We did all we could. I have to move on. But you still have to be, you know, compassionate towards the family when you deliver the news, when you unfortunately now with like COVID, most of the time you're telling patients, families that, you know, someone died over the phone. And so mm-hmm. I. I have had moments during the middle of my shift or right after a patient died where I either talked to someone else on my team about it. We debriefed about what happened. I text my friend who's also an emergency medicine doctor like, hey, I had this happen. You know, I feel awful. And so always having that support system. But then, you know, I I go home and the next day I'm like, okay, you know, kind of reflect on what happened and, you know, find reasons to remember that, you know, I tried my best and then I take care of myself. And for me, that includes, you know, getting two massages a month or more if I can, going to the spa, like I have a hot tub where I live. So I use that very often. I go lifting about twice a week, three times a week. Sometimes I I go to, I go lifting at five in the morning so I can make it to my shift at like seven in the morning. And so I just find ways where I cut down my sleep a little so that I can do all the things that I love and continue to be happy because I've seen so many people who who appear unhappy because all they do is medicine and they let those things that happen at work kind of take over their life. And I come home and I'm like, okay, like medicine is done. Like I'm here. I'm, I, I want to do the things that I love. I want to 
talk to the people that I love and do all kinds of exciting things like go hike a mountain or travel to Mexico or, you know, uh, continue to have that that joy, which is not medicine. Like I, I love medicine and that's why I went into medicine, but medicine is definitely not my life, you know, and I think that more people need to notice that. And I think that my generation is better at that, that there's so much more than just medicine in like day in and day out, because that's how you burn out. If that's all you do and all you think about, and you just sit there and dwell about the things that happen, because there's a lot of bad things that happen in medicine, unfortunately, because, you know, some people just show up very sick to the hospital, or there's a horrible car accident, and you do all that you can, but you can't save everyone. Did you intuit that sense of making those boundaries? Or did you see someone that was so ill managing of their emotions or in time or uh, how, because it seems like you, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's, you found a really good groove and you're very uh, self-aware and perceptive of all that. Um, did, like what did, did that just kind of, how did you find that discipline to be able to see things so clearly? You know, I think it happened when I was in medical school. So I don't remember if we talked about this on the last podcast on the first one we did, But during medical school, I took a gap year because I was under a lot of stress and my one of my cousins had committed suicide. Someone else had been killed in from actually from Washakawa High School back home, who was my cousin's half brother. And and then my uncle died and it was just death after death, like every single month someone was dying. And and I kept telling myself, I'm fine. I can study. I got this. And then at some point I just realized I couldn't do it anymore, that I had to step away and so that year, I spent like at least five months just regaining my joy, which was like traveling, being with my family, kind of reflecting on all the deaths and what it meant and how to, you know, I went to therapy and that helped me as well. And so I think that I learned so many skills during that year that reminded me of how how people should be outside of medicine and kind of that humanity that comes from kind of letting go of all the things that you can't control anymore. And so, you know, every once in a while I catch myself, I'm like, Oh, I'm not praying as much. I'm not reflecting as much. And I have to just snap out of it. But I think that was the year where I realized I won't ever let medicine or anything kind of take over my life the way that I did during the time when I decided that medical school was way was worth way more than my life was or my emotions were or anything else in my life. Oh, that was, that, that was, that's just so incredibly powerful what you just said there. Cause it's just so much, um, uh, just, so the reflection and then the, and just the ability to just lean into knowing that you needed the time and saw people to give you the therapy, to, to give you the tools to emotionally manage that. That was, that was, um, so well said. So you, you finish your gap year and then you return to med school. I think that's roughly where we left off uh, last time. I think you were still doing some HIV research and all that. So tell me about how you finished off your last year of, uh, of, of med school. Yeah, I actually had so much fun. Like when I returned, part of me, not going to lie, part of me was like, do I even want to go back? Well, I was, I was scared that I 
that I was, I was going to say, like, did you feel that you got rusty from the study, the grind of studying a little <laughs> yeah, bit? Yeah, I was, I was nervous that I was going to go back and, and hate it because I'm like, I just had like five months of just doing Jessica, of just doing all the things that I love. And I'm not, now I need to go back to medical school and go back to this routine of work, work, study, 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 work, study, and, you know, not having the, the life that I wanted. And so that actually never happened. I just, I, I went back and I realized I was a much happier medical student because I, I had already decided, you know, medicine's not going to win here. I'm going to go in with a good attitude and, and, you know, uh, continue to do the things that I, that I love. And so I signed up for like boxing classes. I was spending more time with my friends on a weekly basis and I was studying, but I was also taking breaks during my studying. So I wasn't going like eight hours straight anymore. I was like, okay, I, I realized I got distracted. And so I'm going to go and take a little walk and come back because I also realized my different study skills. I just couldn't study eight hours straight anymore. And I realized that wasn't good for my mental health. And so because I decided to choose myself, I think medicine became more enjoyable than it was the first like two years of medical school. And I did that for the rest of the two years. And those were my happiest years of medical school. And, and then, you know, then I graduated and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this actually happened despite the obstacles that I had, despite having to take a year off. You know, some people unfortunately graduate from medical school and don't have a resident job. They don't match. And so I, I did worry. I was like, I wonder if me taking a year off is going to, you know, affect me in any way in the match process. But my interviews went great. And I think I touched with so many I, I touched a lot of hearts during my interviews because I was I was so real and so transparent about everything that happened. And, you know, I ended up matching at one of my top places in the country. And so, you know, I, I'm so thankful that I ended up here where I am at Loma Lindex. I think I've I've definitely found some amazing, amazing uh teachers and uh individuals that I really trust who have helped me when I have when I encounter any issues here. But, you know, it was definitely a moment where, you know, my I would when I graduated, when I was on stage, I was like, wow, like this finally happened. Like I'm, I'm the first, first physician in my family. Like from now on, like I, I get to, you know, introduce myself as Dr. Munoz to my patients, like, especially, wow. you know, it was just such an incredible moment. And I, I wasn't expecting it. I, I got a few awards as well. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I, I, I may not be the smartest person, but I definitely try my best and I do it with like a full heart. And I think that, uh, my patients know that they feel that. And I think that makes a, such a difference. And so it, it's been such a journey, e even now as a resident, you know, I, there's days where I'm like, wow, I've, I've learned so much. I, I know so much. I feel more comfortable. But then you go back to those days where like, I've never encountered this before. This is a difficult, challenging patient presentation. And so there's good and bad days. And I think you just have to learn how to juggle it all. And, and I think, going back to all these issues that I encountered and on, on my journey remind me of how lucky I am to be here, to be like, wow, like I had a lot of obstacles, but I'm still here, you know? And so I think that that's pretty incredible. And, you know, I, I'm very proud of how far I've come. Uh, without, without, a, without a doubt. It, so if just to, to rewind a little bit, um, what are your when you're when you were in the in the in in the thick of of studying and all that? I have to ask 
a, a, a teacher question, which is what is your best time management hack or management uh, time management uh, idea? And what's your, your best study hack? Like, and how do you like, cause as a doctor, you have to be able to manage an incredible amount of information and then see through it in terms of its application and, and, and be confident in all that. What are your best time management and study hacks uh, as, as you made your way through uh, med school? So I think the most important thing is kind of figuring out how you learn best. And so I very quickly learned that I did not like, I don't like to sit there and just read. I need to be active when I'm learning. And so I, I realized that doing questions for me was the most effective. And so I spent most of my time doing questions and then reading over content that I truly didn't understand and then talking it out with my friends. And now as a as a resident, because I work so much, I come home and I honestly don't have an ounce in me that wants to study because <laughs> I'm so tired and I just want to sleep or, you know, do human things. And so... I every once in a while, like a couple times a week, I'll listen to a podcast on my way to work because that's another way that I, I I really enjoy podcasts. But I think that things really stick with me when I either see it. So when I'm at work, I'm constantly learning, seeing a patient. I remember the next time like, oh, I had a, pre- a patient who present who presented like this. And it it stays in my memory when I make those connections. But when I hear it as well, when I'm, you know, in the car listening to the podcast, I'm like, okay, I I feel like I've started my day already and it doesn't feel like heavy work. And so, but I still, like even throughout residency, we still have exams. I took a, I believe it was like a five-hour exam, like maybe three months ago. And mm-hmm. I did questions for that. I probably did like 2,000 questions for that one. And then I took a, early on my beginning of the residency year in September, I took a nine-hour test. It was two two days nine hour tests back to back on both days. And that was, it was just a very, very like mentally uh, difficult day because you're just so tired of sitting there for so long. But I think resident in medical school and residency kind of just prepares you for those, for those long days where you just got to kind of push through it sometimes and be like a, like a human um, machine. Sometimes it feels like, (laughs) My AP students just had their exam today. I'm like, well, if you think you had it bad, let me tell you about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy when I sit there and think yeah. like, wow, I really did take yeah. like a, a 18 hour exam in two days. <laughs> right? It's like, I, I can't get my mind around that. Um, yeah, you have so- to you have to plan your, because when every time you get in and out of the, the exam, they, they do your fingerprints, you know, they, they have this oh, wow. swap, like, machine thing to check that you don't have any electronics they even checked inside my boot one day and i'm like do you really think i have answers in there like what are you doing um and you only get like 40 minute breaks and so i'm like okay when am i going to go to the bathroom when am i going to (laughs) eat right i want to ask another question about um the the matching process uh and all that so you had a a slate how do you decide what's what hospitals and then how what's the process by which the stars align and you then find each other. Like uh, if you could uh, walk me through uh, that selection process. Yeah. So the whole thing is essentially done by an algorithm. So some computer out there kind of designs, you know, it's designed and, and then it kind of makes its way out, but you 
basically get to pick where you want to apply. And that's done mostly by location. So for a lot of people, they're like, I'm from the Midwest. I want to stay in the Midwest, you know, Midwest till I die type of idea. And some I decided based on the patient population, I'm like, I want to go to big city where, you know, there's a lot of Latinos and that's important for me. I want to be somewhere where the sun is, where it's sunny most of the days because I don't want to have difficult days and come home to like, you know, seven inches of snow or whatnot. And so a lot of people decide based on that. So it's like geographical location and then also the residency program that you're going into and which programs are are well known and where you think you will thrive. And so after that, you apply. I think I spent like $3,000 applying to all these programs or something. It's kind of crazy. And then, so you apply and then the the programs decide who they want to interview. So then you interview and then at the very end, there's a day where you submit your top choices. So some people may rank 14 programs, others may rank 20, whatever the case is, the hospitals, the programs themselves will also rank all their candidates. They may not rank some people, so they might only rank, you know, the, the 200 resident, the 200 medical students that they favored and then nobody else. And so then based on your rank list and their rank list, there's the algorithm that kind of determines where you end up. And so it usually works in the favor of the medical students. So wherever you rank kind of higher, if they ranked you in their top, you know, top 20, top 30 or whatever, then you have a high chance of ranking there, of, of actually matching there. But uh, certain programs, you know, some programs may only have six residents, others may have 20. And so that kind of also determines whether or not you may end up there. You know, you have a better chance, obviously, at a larger program that ranked more people. Um, But then then there's this one day where you open your envelope and that kind of determines where you go and you can literally end up anywhere in the country based on where you where you applied and who interviewed you. Now you get matched with Loma Linda, which you said is about what you said it was about maybe an hour east of um, Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So an, an hour yeah, east from, from LA. No. So when you start your uh, interning now, do you, I wonder if, could you describe like the, I do you, or have you gone through rotations already or did you know, like, no, it's emergency room the whole time. Like what, what's the, uh, what's the, the whole process and, and how long uh, will your residency be? Yeah. So my residency is a three-year program. There are some emergency medicine residency programs that are four years, but Loma Linda is only three. And you also have the option if you want to do a fellowship after you're done. But you, my first year, I actually only spent, I'd say maybe a total of maybe like two and a half to, if you count my orientation, then maybe three months total in the emergency room. But most of my other rotations have been like in the intensive care unit, anesthesia, pediatric emergency medicine as well. And I also had like cardio, I'm currently in the cardiac intensive care unit, but there's so many rotations. We do two months of trauma surgery as well. There's a lot of other rotations that we do. So it's not just medicine because they really want you to, to see like obviously what happens to patients after they leave the emergency room, if they're admitted into the hospital, how to better manage more critically ill patients, not just when the emergency room, but, you know, once they're, once we get them admitted. 
And so a lot of our, especially our first year, there's a lot of off-service rotations that we go through. Thankfully, I'm really excited because second year, we spend like six months in the emergency room. And I obviously, for me, that's my happy place. Like I, going through these rotations, I have moments where I'm like, gosh, I'm so happy I'm in the emergency room. Like I'm not enjoying this very much right now because we have a, it's such a different uh, speed. It's so much faster in the emergency room. There's a lot more exciting things happening throughout the day. And I get really bored when I'm just kind of sitting there managing patients throughout the day, like, oh, what's their potassium today? Like, what is, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just so different, you know, and you can tell right away based on personalities, like, oh, is she, she wants to do the procedures and they know that I'm the emergency medicine person. <laughs> so it's always, uh, it's always funny to kind of see the differences in personalities and where they where they end up. Well, I'm always fascinated about how the mind works in various different professional contexts. And you're in in an emergency room and you have to make decisions based on what you see in front of you. Uh, Could could you maybe walk me through like, like how, how do you prioritize what happens when a, a patient comes in? Obviously, there's different degrees of injury because they're they're a, a, in an emergency room. But I, I was wondering, like, how do you? What's what are what's the? Is there a, a what's the typical process of how your mind works when you're trying to um, confront what's in front of you in the emergency room? Yeah, I think it's actually kind of like like a a protocol. It's like standardized. Like every time, especially if it's someone who's unstable, they come in and. The first thing you do, we call them the ABCs. So the first thing you do is airway. Like, is this patient able to talk to you? Are they protecting their airway? You know, are you worried that they may not be able to breathe on their own pretty soon here? And and you can move on to B, which is breathing, and then C, which is circulation, until you're you are confident that they that they're like protecting their airway. Because if they're not, then you're gonna get ready to intubate this patient. You know, put a tube down their throat so that they a machine can breathe for them. And so then after that, you know, you listen to their lungs, you make sure they're not like um, that, that you feel their pulses because, you know, um, if you start to worry that they might start, they might start to code if they don't have a pulse and, you know, you need to start uh, compressions and, and, you know, then the nurses are really helpful with, uh, with the codes. So you rely on a lot of people around you. And actually as, as the emergency medicine resident, um, a lot of times, you know, your your initial it's it's interesting because you go through stages. Initially, you you want to be right there and trying to do things, but the most important thing is kind of directing the whole team, directing the team as far as like, you know, let's find the reasons for why this patient is is not breathing well right now or this patient, you know, is has very low pulses, their heart like figuring out how you can intervene and change what's happening currently. And so uh, sometimes you, as an intern, it's hard because you're like, oh, I want to put a, if the patient needs pressors to keep their blood pressure up, I want to put the central line in, you know, and, and that's always really exciting. But then there's so much going on around you while you're doing the procedure. You have like 15 people staring at you while you're trying this procedure for the first time. And um, at the same time, you have to keep track of what else is going on. You know, what is the what is the EKG showing for, for the patients? <coughs> um, like, are they, is the patient having a heart attack? You know, is the patient, do you think their, their brain is bleeding? Like there's just so many things that could be going on with this patient at once. 
And so I think initial the initial resuscitation is is pretty standardized and and easy, but like figuring out what actually is wrong with them sometimes is isn't always very obvious because it could be so many things. You know, they could have ingested something, they could have overdosed on something, they may have heart failure and now their heart's just not pumping anymore. They may have fluid in their lungs. And so you can use your ultrasound to try to get a lot of these answers, but there's there's a lot going on at once. It's interesting because at the beginning of this interview, we were talking about how you made the switch from going into law enforcement and investigations. But this is kind of like what you're doing now, except you're doing it at a pace that's that much quicker. You don't have to wait for, you know, fingerprints to go back to the lab and then you figure stuff out like you are getting all the information and and solving the, the puzzle of what's happening right in front of you in the emergency room. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting that that same need to solve puzzles is, is, is just, it's in a different kind of form as you, you are in the emergency room uh, that yeah. way. And it's, it's so fast. And I think that I'm, I think most people in the emergency room are able to really keep their chill, you know, but as you're learning, you're like, wow, I, you know, you look up to the people that are, that are a lot more, um, experience than you are. So like the person who's supervising me, like looking to see what ideas come to their brain so that by the time I'm at their level, I'm also able to do the same or better. And so you have all kinds of people asking you questions to the nurses the respiratory therapists. There's just so many people involved and they always come to you. And so you kind of just have to get used to like learning how to also when, when are you able to answer the question and when do you need to ask for help? Because I'm, I'm still learning. There's so much that I still don't know. And so some people, I think it's, that's difficult for them to accept when they need help. But I think it's so critical, especially in the emergency room. Like, I actually don't know. Like, let me talk to my supervisor about this before making a decision that can hurt my patient. I was wondering, you know, if you could maybe describe like your best mystery that you solved when it you that maybe something came into the emergency room and you weren't clear you talked about the abcs but i was wondering as best you can describe it was like what was a scenario where like wait this didn't work but then i did that do you remember like what was your most satisfying medical puzzle that you solved uh so far in your internship uh in, in the emergency room so i i had a patient who came in who was completely fine. He was an older gentleman who just came in because he was having a little bit of back pain. Um, and when I saw him, he was completely oriented, like he knew who he was and where he was. And he wasn't really complaining of anything to me. And then I called his caregiver, you know, when he had a conversation on the phone and she was like, oh, he kind of just like woke up complaining of, of back pain. But when I saw him, he wasn't complaining of any back pain. And so we, because he was an older person, we had to do like di a bunch of different um, of scans. And I ended up doing um, an x-ray on him of his, um, of his hips. And we ended up finding that he was actually like bleeding from his, uh, from his, he had, he had a broken, uh, a broken bone. And so we, we had to call the orthopedic doctors to come in and help us. And so that was like just a situation where like when I, when I called them, I went back to the room to check on him and he became, he had no idea where he was. His heart rate was dropping. Like, you know, we had to, and then at some point he lost, 
um, he lost pulses and we had to start CPR on him. And it just happened so fast. And to be completely honest, like we don't know if it was because he was like bleeding out or if there was something else going on because all of his other labs were okay. And so we didn't have a clear answer. All I knew was that he was like, you know, had a lot of bleeding from his broken fracture. Uh, so sometimes you don't always end up getting a clear answer for what happened and you just have to start treating whatever is in front of you yeah. because you have like a broken puzzle and it's difficult when, you know, patients aren't able to tell you the full story, what happens a lot. So just when you are, uh, so when you finish your internship, are you going, do you typically stay with the hospital that you uh, complete your interning uh, with, or do you, um, or do you, where, do you go beyond that, or, or where do you think you'll stay in California, Southern California, and or and stay at Loma Linda? Or what's what's the, what happens when you finish? So uh, basically, with with these programs for residency, you end up staying at, especially for emergency medicine, you stay at that program until you finish your full training. So I'll be here until 2024. But there are some other programs out there where you do your first year at a different hospital and then you finish your next three years at other hospitals. But for me, I'll, I'll be staying here for, for another another two years. And then after that, will you then stay on with um, Loma Linda or do you or do, would you are you going to maybe go to different parts of the country? Uh, so I am actually thinking about maybe returning back to Chicago. So you can apply anywhere. Once you're done, you can hmm. you're you can go anywhere. But I think I wouldn't be closer to my parents. I, I love California. And unless I convince them to move here, I probably will go back <laughs> uh, just because I'm like, oh, they're getting older. And, you know, every once in a while I do miss them. But it's I, I also think that it would be really cool to be like in the emergency room, like at CDH and be like, oh, I know some of these people, <laughs> you know, like it's just different. Uh, so so I'm I'm still open as far as to where I'll apply. But I'm definitely considering uh, Chicago as as one of my priorities right now. I, I know you you're very driven and you've accomplished all of the goals that you've set out so far. You mentioned earlier that you really are thinking about um, transitioning into perhaps uh, policy work, maybe running for uh, for office. Do you what what kind of time frame do you think that you might begin to uh, to, to begin that? Um, uh, begin that track. Yeah, I think I've actually been thinking a lot more about that because I think it's it's getting time to where like, oh, I'm almost graduating. I need to kind of figure it out. But I think that I want to spend maybe a few a few years as you know, once I'm done with residency, being out there, you know, being my own supervisor, teaching other residents and things like that. But I would say early. I want to say like maybe you know, when I'm 35 or even maybe sooner, I just kind of have to figure out how I'll balance. Like if I could do like part-time in the hospital and then part-time, uh, you know, in, in policy work, I think that that would be the ideal plan, but I haven't quite yet figured it out. I have been in touch with, uh, Karina Villa and kind of helping, having her help me guide my path as far as that part of my career and how I'll be able to manage both, because ideally I would like to do both, but I think that not a lot of people have this career path, and so I'm trying to figure out 
what will be best for me. And I don't quite yet know what timing that would be. So Jess, you've been, again, so incredibly generous with your time uh, out in California with this, with, with this interview. And uh, I'm going to ask you one more time to give tips for success for current Wildcats that may, uh, it's, uh, success for really whether or not they're going into the medical field or just tips for success heading into their future. What would you advise them? I would say don't ever limit yourself, whether that's, you know, where your family comes from, how much money you currently have, or your family currently has, like, don't let those things determine where you'll be in a few years, you know, don't let what other whatever obstacles you've, you are currently facing or have faced, faced in the past determine who you will become and, and the goals that you want to achieve. Because I think when you're so young, especially in high school, you're so you're just so focused on on like who what's going on in that moment and it's hard to see like the whole picture and so i'd say like you got to you got to just stay determined and like keep pushing you know finding finding your support because i think that's the most important thing the people that who will continue to to help you along the way and don't let, don't let anyone ever tell you you can't do something. Like I definitely had people who told me, "Oh, you won't ever be a doctor. You won't go to you won't get into medical school." And so it wasn't about proving them wrong, but I I I knew that I could do it. And so I was like, "Well, I'm just not going to listen to you guys. So just <laughs> just do your thing and and focus on on your own wellness and your own priorities, nobody else's, because you're the one who lives with your decisions, nobody else." Ah, so well said. Jessica, we're so proud of everything uh, that you've accomplished. And uh, again, the lives that are going to be improved, saved, and be able to live uh, uh, because of all of your hard work that you've done in schooling and continuing with all your passions. Uh, we're just so happy uh, that we could call you a wildcat. So this is uh, this has been great. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Eternbo, for, for allowing me to get on here again and, and give some wisdom. That's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places podcast or on Twitter at We Go Places.